This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. It's the spring of 1987, and you're a busy college student frantically trying to finish all of your assignments. You can practically taste summer, but these projects and essays won't write themselves. You've got a few hours before your next class, so hopefully you can hammer out one of these essays. You grab your backpack and the floppy disk your roommate gave you, head to the library and snag one of the last free computers. You put the disk in and boot up the computer. But something's not right. The screen is a mess and quickly fills with random numbers. You can't access anything. The computer seems corrupted and slows to a halt. The only thing you can make out from the mess in front of you is one recognizable word. It's a word that will change the world of computers and technology forever. I'm Jamie Logie, and this is Everything 80s, a podcast that looks back on a decade that forever changed the way we dressed, consumed, and connected. And today, we travel back to one of the most critical eras in the history of technology, and a time when the threat of computer viruses became much more real than we ever expected. This is the story of the brain computer virus. The threat of computer viruses have been around for many, many decades. The roots of modern viruses go all the way back to the late 1940s and a paper called Theory and Organization of Complicated Automata. Written by John Van Neumann, he presented the theory that computer programs could reproduce. One of the first significant computer viruses was Creeper from 1971. Creeper could move through computers connected to the Advanced Research Projects Agency Network, or ARPANET, something we'll get back to a little later on. Creeper bounced around on the network, displaying the message, I'm the Creeper, catch me if you can. But Creeper turned into a worm and was able to leave copies of itself on other computers. But it wasn't designed with malicious intentions. In 1975, a new worm appeared, called Animal. But this was more of a game that tried to guess what animal you were thinking of. But when Animal was installed on computers, it made a copy of itself in every folder the user had access to. On bigger systems and networks, Animal was able to spread relatively far. But again, it was a mainly harmless virus. In 1982, teenager Richard Skrenta created a program called Elk Cloner, which was spread through disks used to boot up the Apple II. This program was meant as a prank, but was a true virus that didn't spread through a network, but from computer to computer by infected disks. That's a quick sampling, but during this time, to the average person, Computers were institutional machines that took up an entire room. Or 
They were just for extreme hobbyists. They didn't have any real impact on our day-to-day lives. So a virus wasn't of any concern to you and I. But that's all about to change as we exit the 70s and enter the 80s and the era of the personal computer or PC. The story of the brain-computer virus is also the story of the rise of the PC as the two things go hand in hand. As we come out of the 70s, some of the first home computers on the market included the Apple II. This is an Apple II. And this is an Apple also. The Tandy Radio Shack TRS-80 and the Commodore PET. These machines were innovative, but still for a niche audience. The Commodore PET was found in schools, but not many homes had a PC yet. Was there a chance these machines could appeal to a broader audience? Computers took some skill to operate, and the average person wasn't necessarily a technical wizard. How could a PC benefit them? This takes us to 1981 and to the International Business Machines Corporation, better known as IBM. At this point in the 80s, IBM dominated the computer world. They had introduced the floppy disk and the hard drive. They controlled the mainframe market, leaving all of their competitors in their dust. They had hundreds of thousands of employees and tens of billions in sales. But they had yet to enter one of the most lucrative areas of all, our homes. IBM saw what companies like Apple, Tandy, and Commodore were doing and recognized that there may be some demand for a smaller home computer. Not only that, but the personal computer was quickly appealing to the small business sector. IBM chairman Frank Carey wanted something similar. But by 1980, IBM had only produced two failed attempts at a small, simple home computer. At this point, the Atari 2600 and home video games had really caught on. Maybe if a home computer could eventually play video games as well as provide other functions, it may make more sense to the average consumer. But for the time being, the goal was a smaller personal computer that also had a big appeal to businesses, schools, and hopefully homes. Under the name Project Chess, the team working on the new project eventually created a machine that would, quote, really capture people's hearts and minds. The IBM PC 5150. The very first computers seemed as big as houses and so mysterious that for most of us, the computer was behind a closed door. But IBM was thinking how to make the computer more useful. And as one good idea led to another, it began getting smaller, faster, less expensive, and easier to use. In just one year, IBM had accomplished its goal of creating a personal computer. For the operating system and software, they'd even joined forces with a young college dropout who, along with his friend Paul Allen, had started a new company no one had really heard of yet. That person was Bill Gates, and the company was called Microsoft. By the end of 1982, 50,000 5150s had been sold. The rise and success of the IBM PC would pave the way for something happening on the other side of the world, and the two events would soon find themselves on a collision course. While the IBM PC and other alternatives were gaining traction in North American homes, 
In Lahore, Pakistan, brothers Bazit and Amjad Farooq Alvi are running a company called Brain Computer Services. It's 1985, and Amjad, a very talented programmer, has gone from fixing computers to creating customized software. But he grew increasingly frustrated as he saw his programs copied and shared around Lahore without permission. He wanted a way to stop this and came up with the idea of a program that would disrupt the use of the disk and the program being run on it. The user of that disk would then see an on-screen message that informed them to contact Brain Computer Services to repair it. By adding this code to the disks, it would infect the user's computer and maybe this way they could crack down on the unauthorized spread of their work. But this would be a, quote, friendly virus. It wouldn't do any damage to the computer, just disrupt that specific program and notify the user of whom to contact to get it working again. Ultimately, it was just a way to stop piracy. But this snippet of code would spread far beyond their town in Pakistan. Another reason the virus was created was the brothers wanted to explore the security holes of the operating systems, specifically the Disk Operating System, or DOS, which looked to be very vulnerable. They also wanted to see how floppy disks and software moved around various locations, and by putting a code into the disk, they could see whether it spread around the world or stayed in a more central location. But the core of all of this comes out of the frustration of having their programming work copied and shared without permission. The brothers had the idea for this virus as far back as 1984, but the finalized version wasn't completed until September 1986. Another one of the services at the Brain Store was selling brand name computer programs like WordStar or Lotus123. Lotus123 at the time was a state-of-the-art spreadsheet software. Lotus was considered one of the first killer applications for the IBM PC. When Lotus introduced 123 software, it became the talk of the business world. And 123 quickly took its rightful place at the top of the PC software sales charts. Back in the 80s, programs like these could run you hundreds of dollars. At Brain Computer Services, they were as low as $1.50. Computer-savvy tourists visiting this part of Pakistan, which included many backpackers and students, couldn't believe their eyes and quickly snatched up copies to take home with them. But for unsuspecting tourists, their cut-rate software also included that snippet of computer code. Those who took the disk home soon encountered a troubling message. As they ran the disk, a disk error flashed on their screens. The screen filled with unrecognizable characters and numbers, and the name on the floppy disk on the disk drive changed to the word brain. Your computer appeared to be a mess, and there was a chance you could lose a lot of your work. But if you dug deep enough, you uncovered the message, Welcome to the Jungle. The message also informed the user to, quote, Beware of this virus, contact us for vaccination, unquote. Along with this was an address and a phone number for the Brain Computer Store. Unsuspecting people, including a lot of students and professionals, were sharing their programs and seeing the same messages. 
Something was going wrong with their computers. Thousands were panicking, wondering if their computer was destroyed and all their work lost. And this seemed to be happening in quite a few locations. So how does this brain virus actually work? The virus was infecting IBM PC-compatible computers by spreading through the infected floppy disk. When an infected disk was inserted into a computer, the virus would copy itself onto the boot sector of the disk and modify the disk file allocation table. The virus then replaced the original boot sector with its own code, which allowed it to load into the computer's memory during the boot-up process. The virus ensured that it would be executed whenever the computer started up, making it difficult to detect and remove. Then, through various stealth techniques, the virus was also able to hide its presence and evade detection. It really was a sophisticated piece of coding, but it rapidly got out of hand. Now, anywhere an infected disk was shared, those computers quickly became infected too. A disk used on that infected computer also became infected and spread to the next computer it was used on, and so on, and so on. And a university with upwards of tens of thousands of teachers and students sharing disks and computers was the perfect breeding ground for it to spread. In October 1987, the brain virus was detected at the University of Delaware. Then it was also found in a few other locations on the campus. The virus quickly attacked many other universities around the country. According to the University of Maryland, the brain virus is considered the first self-replicating computer virus to strike in the United States outside of testing in a computer lab. It was self-replicating, a concept that wasn't easy to wrap your mind around back then. It was just like what John Van Neumann had proposed 40 years earlier when he said computer programs may be able to reproduce. The virus was also spreading quickly to universities all around the world. And a university in the 1980s really was the perfect setting for a virus-like brain to spread. Universities were closed and centralized locations that contained a vast majority of the personal computers in existence. Not a lot of homes had a computer in 1986-87, but every university did. Computers in universities were also within close proximity, and floppy disks could easily be passed around. But it wasn't just universities. The virus spread to businesses and newspapers. The important thing to remember is the brain virus wasn't created to destroy anything. It was a form of copy protection and monitoring. But it still slowed down the floppy disk drive, leading to user panic. But that seemed to take a back seat to how fast this thing was spreading. Brain may not have destroyed your computer, but it was incredibly disruptive and, most worryingly, showed how vulnerable the PC really was. By the end of 1986, Brain had spread through North America and into Europe. Infected floppy disks were moving across countries and even oceans, infecting computers one by one. Everything 80s will return after these messages. 
it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. By 1989, the brain virus had truly spread around the world. And according to Time magazine, it had infected at least 100,000 discs just in the U.S. alone. This is really remarkable when you consider it took a physical act to spread this virus. It wasn't spread through spam emails or today's malware, but by actual floppy disks that had to be taken from machine to machine and country to country. But now, with so much spread and their phone number included in the virus information, the phones for the brain computer store were ringing off the hook. Irate people from around the world were demanding to know what brain had done to their computer. Their phone lines quickly became overloaded. Computer viruses were nothing new, but as the home PC became more prevalent, viruses like brain suddenly became a real issue. What once seemed like a science fiction problem could now cause havoc for society, which was quickly becoming dependent on computers. The brain virus was among the earliest examples that alerted the world to the potential risks of computer viruses. Even the term computer virus was a relatively new thing and was only first introduced in the early 1980s by Fred Cohn, a PhD student from the University of Southern California. The emergence of brain was a wake-up call that brought attention for the need for more computer protection. If brain could unintentionally spread this quickly around the world, clearly we needed some sort of way to combat computer viruses. Our computer systems needed to be protected against malicious code. The 1983 movie War Games about a student who inadvertently hacks his way into a military computer that puts us on the brink of nuclear war seemed like fantasy. But as our militaries relied more and more on computers, could this really happen? If brain wasn't intended to do damage, what about a virus that did? It seems cliche, but what if something like this got into the wrong hands? As fast as progress was being made in the 80s, computer viruses warned us not to get too ahead of ourselves. Governments and military had the money and ability to protect their computer systems, but what about the average consumer who really didn't know much about how their computer actually worked? Enter the son of an American father and English mother who was born in the UK on an army base. John McAfee was born in 1945 in England and eventually ended up in the US attending college in Virginia, graduating with a bachelor's degree in math. The extremely bright McAfee, who had a love of computers, became a talented programmer and soon went to work for NASA, where he worked on the Apollo program. His abilities took him to work for Univac, a universal automatic computer company where he was a software designer. From there, he ended up at Xerox designing operating systems. 
It's interesting because we associate Xerox as just being a copier. But in the 70s, they were on the cutting edge of computer technology. Their advancements included things like the Graphical User Interface, or GUI. GUI is the fancy way of describing the icons you see on a desktop computer, like dragging files to a trash can. In the 70s, the Xerox Alto was a computer that made use of this GUI, which would impress a young Steve Jobs and had a big influence on the Apple Lisa, an iconic Macintosh computer. But while Steve Jobs and Apple were taking off in the 80s, McAvee found himself working for Lockheed, the aerospace manufacturer. In 1986, while at Lockheed, he came across an article in the Mercury News discussing the mysterious brain computer virus and how far and quickly it had spread. This terrified McAvee. He knew computers as well as anyone, and the awareness of brain solidified how interconnected and vulnerable our computers really were. But besides fear, Brain also triggered something else, a business opportunity. If code could be written to create a virus and infect a computer, could a program be created to detect this code? And not only that, but could it remove the virus completely, rendering the computer safe and protected? If computer viruses exist, could an antivirus exist too? The brain-computer virus was the origin of the McAfee antivirus software. In 1987, McAfee began creating software that could detect malicious software and remove it. He was still at Lockheed and created the software in his home. With the public now more aware of the threat of computer viruses, his antivirus software quickly took off. According to the Sunday Times, in just three years, he was making $5 million a year. In just five years, half of America's Fortune 100 companies had installed his software and were paying a license fee for the full protection. The brain virus inadvertently gave way to a whole new industry, antivirus software. When Intel bought McAfee in 2010, the deal was valued at nearly $8 billion. At the time, this was the largest acquisition in the computer security sector ever. And it all came about because two brothers in their little computer shop didn't want people copying their software. As the 80s come to an end and the 90s began, a new product also hit the market, Norton Antivirus, a software with even more security features. Today, antivirus software continues to be a multi-multi-billion dollar industry. As we reach the last few years of the 80s, the PC is now in more homes. They have become more affordable, more practical for the average family, and could play some pretty great video games too. It was the rapid rise of the PC in the 80s that allowed brain to spread the way that it did. And now, more people than ever were aware of computer viruses. But since we were more aware, what might come next? What should we be on the lookout for? And what happens if there's a virus that could do actual damage? It wouldn't take long to find out. As the PC became more commonplace in our homes, 
something else was happening in the world of computers, a way that machines could be connected and share information without floppy disks. Unless you were really into computers back then, the average person didn't necessarily know of an international group of computer communications networks or internet as it was being referred to. But now tens of thousands of computers could be linked together 24 hours a day. By 1988, some 60,000 computers in 17 different countries were connected. But something soon happened that caused panic within the network and, once again, showed us how vulnerable computers were. At around 8.30 p.m. on November 2, 1988, a program was released at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. Its creator, Robert Morris, a Harvard graduate with a love of computers just looking to pull a prank. The program he created was a worm, able to self-propagate through the internet but it spread much quicker than he anticipated. Before he knew it, some 6,000 computers were now infected. It spread to the other side of the country and to some of the most prestigious universities like Harvard and Princeton. But now, since more institutions were part of this internet, it spread to places like Johns Hopkins and even NASA. And after airlock depressed valve closed, O2 Unlike brain, this virus was causing damage. It slowed down or completely stopped electronic mail. It disrupted programs. And according to FBI.gov, even slowed vital military operations to a crawl. It felt like war games was happening right before our eyes. And now, because of brain, people knew that computer viruses were no joke. The Defense Department, universities, and research centers are still recovering tonight from a computer virus that brought a nationwide network to a standstill. One of the institution's hardest hit was MIT. The rapidly spreading program would forever be known as the Morris Worm. And its rapid spread wiped out many systems and cost institutions upwards of millions of dollars to fix. The Morris Worm was another wake-up call for how vulnerable our computers were. Computer technology went even deeper than most people realized. For many, news of the Morris Worm was the first time they ever heard the word internet. If brain was the smoke, the Morris Worm was the fire. And in an unprecedented move, the FBI decided that Morris himself had broken federal law. He was the first person charged with the relatively new Computer Fraud and Abuse Act of 1984. The brain computer virus was born out of anti-piracy. It was a creation to protect someone's hard work, but it ended up changing the world of technology forever. There had been previous computer viruses, and some may be quite damaging, but with the growth of the personal computer, we really hadn't seen anything on this level before. By the time the brain virus spread like wildfire through the world, the PC was also experiencing a remarkable spread. If the IBM PC hadn't caught on, a virus like brain would have been insignificant. But now we were in a new age where IBM, Apple, and Commodore were creating machines that had a place in everyday life. But computer viruses, we would unfortunately learn, also found a place in everyday life too. 
but it had also given rise to a brand new industry of antivirus software. The story of the brain-computer virus is as much the story of the IBM 5150. The two stories really go hand in hand as the launch of the 5150 gave rise to the IBM XT, the Commodore Amiga 500, and the stalwart Commodore 64, one of the best-selling computers ever. The popularity of the IBM 5150 led other companies to simply put out IBM PC clones. The other companies used Intel processors like IBM and were virtually identical. The rapid rise of the 5150 and all the seemingly identical offshoots created the breeding ground that allowed the brain virus to run so rampant. But by the late 80s, the home PC was here to stay, as were computer viruses. And it was the brain virus that went mainstream, so to speak. The average person who was probably not aware of previous viruses knew about brain, especially if they owned an IBM PC and had their system affected by it. Brain taught people the importance of data backup and was a rude awakening that the small fortune they had spent on a PC could turn it into a very expensive paperweight if they weren't vigilant. By the time the Morris worm came on the scene, cybersecurity, a term that seemed like it only existed in science fiction, was now a very sobering reality. As long as there are computers, there will be malicious viruses that, at a minimum, cause disruption, but in worst case scenarios, completely upend our lives. Whether this is on a government level or on our own personal devices, the brain computer virus was that warning of how our advancements in technology could still be compromised. So that's our show. Thank you so much for listening. If this is your first time here, thank you for checking this show out. And if you're a longtime listener, thank you so much for continuing to be here. I know there are a ton of podcasts out there, so the fact you're spending your time here with me means the world to me. If you liked what you heard, there's plenty more where that came from, so be sure to dive into my earlier episodes for more 1980s content. And if you're a fan of the 80s, make sure to subscribe to the Everything 80s podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, wherever you get your podcasts from, for more epic 80s content. If you really like this show, you can do me a solid and leave a five-star rating and review. That not only makes my mom proud of me, but allows more people to discover these great stories from our past. So that's it for me. I'm Jamie. This has been Everything 80s, but I'll be back soon with a new episode. Don't you dare miss it. Thank you.